Hello, welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja. And in this video, I have combined two previously published videos on worldliness and worlding. Two concepts which are listed under my playlist in Postcolonial Concepts. And the reason I'm doing it is because I've I fielded a few queries where people tend to confuse the two terms. One, worldliness, is from Edward Said, comes from his text, uh, the word, the text, the, cri cri uh, the critic, sorry. And worlding comes from Gayatri Spivak. Famously, she discusses it in one of her essays, The Rani of Simur, and then also eventually develops it into a more elaborated concept. So I thought if I combine the two one after the other, maybe when people watch them one after the other in same video, they will be clearly able to understand the difference between the two terms. So that's the reason for this. Just let me know what you think and uh, I hope this is useful to you. So here we go. I haven't done much editing. It's just the same old videos combined in one complete video. Thank you so much. Welcome back to my channel. Uh, I'm here again to discuss briefly one more concept from postcolonial studies called worlding. Uh, worlding as a concept was first introduced by Gayatri Spivak in one of her essays which was entitled um, the Rani of Simur, an essay in the study of the archives. And I'll post a link to it uh, in the description. And since then, it has been expanded and broadened and used. But basically, in that essay, Spivak describes three kinds of colonial representation of native India. And for the purposes of this brief lecture, I'll only dwell on the first one where she describes this scene of a British officer, I think it's Captain Birch, who is traveling across India with his Indian servant. And in the process of doing that, since he's been sent to gain information about that part uh, of India, and send it to his superiors in Delhi and then from there to England. In the process of traveling across the land, he is recording it, he is mapping it, he's interviewing people. And for Spivak, those actions of having the freedom to travel freely over India with a servant or riding, you know, across the landscape and having the power to map it, name it, record it, forces the native companion that he has with him to protect his own land from the point of view of his master. So protectation is an act of investment, right? Emotional investment, psychological investment in psychoanalysis where we see the word or experiences experience it as those above us or those who have authority over us. So while Captain Birch is traveling over India, the native traveling with him sees his own land where he might have 
been born where he was raised as the land as his master sees it right and starts internalizing the idea that this world upon which they are traveling belongs to his master and that way of looking at their own land by the natives it is what in a nutshell is the wording of the word for the natives now the lineage of the term is from heidegger and to be very honest i'm not an expert to explain that those aspects of it but this aspect of it it is crucial so what is at stake when the native world is worded for the natives i mean the basically what it means is that they will start seeing their own land their own experiences their own culture from the point of view of their colonial masters and if they can do that then how do they mobilize a resistance so if you look at the indian educational system under british you will see that the entire project is a project of wording as well because in the process of getting their education the native students are not just learning british history and the british system of government and their system of values they are also internalizing within that the british view of their own culture their own traditions and their own land in that way textually speaking through an interaction with the medium of the text in pedagogy the natives for them the land that they belong to where they were born and raised becomes the land belonging to their masters and they see it as their masters see it and if you can word a word to a people then naturally they will also buy into and follow the natural hierarchies that have been established by the masters because there is a psychological investment into the narrative of the master himself hence she uses the term correct so overall the wording of the, of the word and uh, you can read the essay of course it's much more complicated because there are layered kinds of reports that are going back to the metropolitan from india any time when a colonial discourse or a colonial document or action encourages or coerces or convinces the native to see his own land right from the point of view of the master or sees it as belonging to the master himself or sees its truth as explained by the master that word has been worded for the natives and there's a lot at stake in it ngo uh, githyango gives a great example of what the educational system in africa introduced by british um especially in kenya but other parts of africa and india does to the natives when the little kids they learn the english language they are not just learning the english language they are internalizing the logic that this is a superior language that this is the language of power and they can only excel if they master it right at the same time they are also learning a certain kind of disdain for their own language for their own culture right so through the act of schooling then for native students their word has been worded where they see it from the point of view of their masters
these are some of the brief notes I have about this uh, complex topic, but I hope these are useful. I highly recommend uh, reading the full essay, the Rani F. Simur, and I'll post a link to it. And thank you so much for joining me. And as usual, if you have any questions, please post them in the comments. And if you want to stay updated about what's uh, posted on this channel, please do subscribe. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining me today uh, at Postcolonial Space. Today, I'll be briefly talking about Edward Said's really important concept world of uh, worldliness. Uh, Said uh, writes about this. Actually, it's the main theme of his work, The World, The Text, and The Critic. One of his major books comes out after Orientalism. And in the introductory parts of the book, what Said is suggesting is what he calls secular criticism. And by that, what he means is that all of us exist in a secular history. <clears throat> and secular criticism would be a kind of criticism which is aware of its own political leanings and is not really overdetermined by them. And in order to make that claim and uh, argue for that point, he discusses the two aspects of our loyalties as individuals and critics in the world. And that is the affiliative and affiliative aspects of our identities. So the affiliative aspects of what you, me, and anyone else is, and also the critics is, of course, the family bonds, the family, the given of the family that determines our politics or our worldviews. But most of the times we outgrow it through our affiliative structures, the university we went to, people we study with, politics that we adopt. And most of the time as critics, it's our affiliative leanings that determine how we read texts and how we write about them. But something else also happens in the process. And that is that our affiliative structures, our affiliative alignments start predetermining how we read the texts and how we write about them. And in that sense, then Saeed would suggest that our affiliative alignments become kind of affiliative because they over-determine how we read texts or how we think about literature. Now, Saeed argues on page 35 about the texts, right? And he says that all texts, no matter how rarefied, how unique, are worldly because they exist in the world. They were compiled and composed in the world and that the critics read them in the world. Hence, the best form of secular criticism would then be a criticism that is worldly. Worldly in a sense that it acknowledges that the text doesn't exist beyond the exigencies of life, beyond history, but also worldly in a sense that the critic his or herself also may take an objective position, but in the end, the critic also exists in the world. So hence, 
worldliness then is keeping in mind the very existential worldliness worldliness of the text itself because it exists in the world because it was created in the world it most of the times responds to the world or represents the world and that the critic his or herself is also worldly and is in the world keeping both of these things in mind while reading a text or while writing about a text will then create a kind of worldly criticism a criticism that is aware that what we do as critics doesn't just happen in the ivory tower but has actual consequences in the world or should have actual consequences in the world and on the other hand it will be the kind of criticism that would be aware of my own worldliness my own prejudices preferences or my own positions in the world and maybe by knowing that we will then create a habit of a secular criticism a criticism that just doesn't push one agenda or the other but rather deals with the text and its implications for the world and acknowledges our own limitations as scholars too so overall worldliness is a really really wonderful concept for all literary scholars to understand this is just a brief introduction but i strongly urge you to read the word the text and the critic and then see how it impacts your work and your scholarship and your pedagogy if you have any further questions if you would like me to elaborate a little more because this is kind of a reductive um, discussion of the concept please uh, feel free to add it in the comments or send me an email at postcolonial.net and i'll be very happy to record another such uh, brief video for you and uh, as always thank you so much for joining me and i will see you next time